Uh, welcome to another episode of Not Investment Advice. We've got an NIA boys here today, Trung fan, me, Master Flex himself, Jack Butcher, founder of Visualized Value, and I'm Bill Alzadi from Crater Lab. Boys, let's get straight into this because I think we just have to zoom in on, on Jack's merch right now. Yeah. It's a vintage find from Nashville because it's really fitting with what's been going on in the last 24 hours. Uh, we're going to talk about the great British pound or the once great British pound <laughs> collapsing. Uh, getting pounded. Getting pounded, all the, all, all the words in there. All right, so Jack, first of all, tell us about the merch, mate, you got for the listeners only. Yeah, I just picked up a little... Uh vintage piece at the uh state what they call it state flea market yesterday five bucks there we Take go this up to new york spin it for a, probably a 20x i would imagine yeah, Gary well, well, would what be is proud. it you gotta tell people what it is it's iron maiden it's an iron, iron maiden, maiden t-shirt little um north american tour 2012 right. so you said that's five bucks which uh which means it's five pounds also right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> would have been about £7.50 at the start of the year <laughs> it's crazy not anymore anyway that's perfect context for a meme of the week here let me spin it up alright All right. Jack's got a meme of the week for us let's do it Jesus Christ <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant alright let's describe it so on this is not Jerome Powell. It's not. Well, well hold on. Oh, Let's give people even, a, a yeah. full context. So the Great British Pound we, we alluded to is getting pounded, but it's down to 1.035, which is almost on parity with the US dollar. So I, I need to ask you guys, because you're from England, how unthinkable is it that the British Pound and the US dollar are near parity? It's pretty mad. Like, you know what? My personal experience with it, my dad was in the Navy and traveled to the States a lot in the 70s and 80s. And it was, uh, I think it was two, $2 to the pound back then. And over yeah. the course of, you know, I've been here 10 years. So I think when I came, it was one point five. Yeah. yeah, yeah Even in the 2000s, mate, it was um, $2 to a pound. Because I remember coming to the States in 2000 and, well, I started the street. Street vibes would not exist without the $2 <laughs> to a pound, essentially. Because wow, I would import arbitrage. stuff. <laughs> yeah, I would import yeah. stuff in dollars, $2 to a pound, sell it in Europe. And then also, I remember coming here and just raiding Macy's like a 16-year-old would do. <laughs> and just going in looking like an absolute the pimp coming boo. home. Dude, I remember yeah. in high school, yeah, when, when Bilal was slanging FUBU and uh, Carl Kanai jeans, uh, what I remember was the pound was like, that was it. Like, I just looked at the exchange rates, like, growing up, I'm like, damn the pound that that thing is fresh but uh hold on that meme though if we put the meme back uh, sorry yeah i just put a shout it while yeah, yeah. we were talking but jack, jack you can bring it up and jack then while you're pulling up i'm gonna bring up one of my favorite rap lyrics as we like to do on the show sway from the uk rapper you used to say the pound is stronger than a dollar holla it was like a chorus do you remember this it was like a classic song from sway and uh yeah it's no sway, longer man. no longer yeah, the no case. longer so jack right. what, what's going uh, on in this photo I don't know what uh, production this is from, but it's uh, three aristocratic-looking <laughs> MFs here peering over a balcony with their noses uh, kind of stuck up. And the caption is, American tourists arriving to the United Kingdom today by our... Uh, our friend, not Jerome, not Jerome Powell. Powell. Yeah. yeah, funny, very funny account. Actually, uh, I actually, uh, one, one uh, side note, I actually asked Jerome, not Jerome Powell, the meme account, what would happen if Jerome Powell didn't uh, get real, I mean, get renominated to the Federal Reserve. He's like, oh, I was just going to keep it going. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> got some history. He's, he's, he's got exasperated. Carry on. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, so let, let's explain what's actually going beyond all the memes because it does really hurt me when people say it's now called soccer, stuff like that. That really hurts my soul. That's the classic um, line everyone's using. But all jokes aside, like, what the hell is actually going on? Because we so saw this, this for the a, Euro, right, as well. The Euro yeah. a few weeks ago, we were saying on the pod. So let me give my uh, CFA analysis, which could be completely correct, incorrect since I don't pay my CFA dues. But it, it sounds like uh, the new prime minister, uh, your lady Tuss, over on Friday, released what was effectively a government budget. And in that budget, they didn't call it a budget, but it was a budget. Uh, it looked like there's going to be a lot of tax cuts. And sounds it. Sounds nice, but then everybody started, the market started wondering, well, how are they going to finance this tax cut? And then it sounded like they're going to go pretty deep and run up the deficit this year. And what I will frame it for one takeaway for the listeners, we don't have to get too deep into it, is the battle that's happening is a battle between uh, central banks and then the governments. So it's called fiscal versus monetary policy. So typically central banks are supposed to be independent bodies. Uh, they, for the most part, they are. They kind of go about controlling the money supply. And uh, in the United States, their job is to keep stable, like 2% growth a year, stable inflation, and uh, uh, and, and keep the employment level at a certain rate. But that runs up against a government that has the power also to run up huge deficits and spend money and uh, cut taxes. So those two are often in kind of they're battling each other that conflict yeah exactly because the government is they want to get reelected, so they might do policies that have higher odds of them getting reelected, like the stuff we all know right like right before an election they'll cut taxes or like do a big cash giveaway do and the central banks, loan forgiveness exactly and the central yeah. bank's like hey that's not great like that's just going to run up the inflation and we're going to have to deal with that so that battle's been going on but the central banks over the past decade since 2008 crisis have kind of like taken you know like we, when we think about monetary policy is like, oh, they're controlling the, the stock market, right? That's kind of the popular mindset. It's like, oh, the Fed is just going to print money. And so they've kind of over the past decade overwhelmed the fiscal side, which is the elected government uh, trying to make these decisions. So why I bring all that up is this past weekend, that's essentially what's happened. This budget comes out, uh, a new prime minister comes in, uh, obviously the queen just died. So there's a lot of like things going on in England. And the question really is now, will the central bank step in? So people are wondering, will the central bank step in and try to save the currency? Um, because a lot of traders or the markets are looking, oh, England's about to spend like drunken sailors, and that's not going to be good for the pound. So the expectation is um, that the UK central bank may, the Bank of England may hike 100 basis points uh, be between now and the next meeting. So an intermeeting hike, which is very rare. Those are called surprise hikes, but those happen in kind of these situations where a currency has kind of, not in this case, it's a run or collapse, but it hasn't collapsed. But getting near parity is obviously concerning for everything we just discussed, right? Yeah, good summary. Jack, any anything else to add there? Very I know you got your dad. You got your dad in town. Has he been uh, giving his takes? Actually, we haven't talked about it yet. I'll have to bring it. Uh, after uh, we've been busy building a fence. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> since up. last week. Yeah, ex naval yeah. officer. Not paying those contractor rates around here, man. We're putting Insane. it in ourselves. Uh, yeah, ten percent. Very similar to the uh, Iron Maiden arbitrage here. Probably about ten percent of the cost of the quotes we got for the fence. That's wild. But anyway, I digress. Wait, ten percent. So yeah, you, you got cost to do it yourself. Crazy. Okay, yeah, okay. just the materials, yeah. 
and labor, which I'm not paying for. Well, you're paying your, how much <laughs> yeah. is your time worth, Jack Roger? Yeah. What's your hourly rate? You know what? This is a good one. This is a good one on uh, leverage. Some things are just so satis- like they're so satisfying to do. You should do them regardless of how yeah. much money you could be making doing Definitely. something else. You're also like doing the, the Steve podcast. Jobs. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you got uh, a chance to do your own version of the Steve Jobs fence story. You, you know that uh, one? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, very, what's very the story? I don't, I don't know this. So, I thought it was uh, a cabinet. Yeah, well, it's either the fence or the cabinet. Yeah. It's just morphed now, but Jack, you, you tell the cabinet version, I'll tell the fence so, version. So the, I don't actually know how to contextualize this but the lesson is the back of the cabinet should be as beautiful and thoughtful and as well put together oh, as the it. front yeah, yeah. and yeah. the inside and everything else steve learned this from his father paul well his adopted or stepfather paul jobs uh who was helping either build a fence or cabinet with him he's like steve you're not done yet you got to yeah, work yeah. on the back yeah, he's like, yeah what do you yeah. mean you got to work on the back it's like Listen, nobody else will see it, but you'll know. You will know what the back okay, looks got like. It. Well, you're looking yeah, yeah. at it in a fence. That's the weird. That's you. Yeah, like, that's it's, the part it's you do. Got to be the cabinet. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, the, yeah. yeah you're that's right. <laughs> or your neighbor, well, or the neighbor sees well, that. So, so Jack actually just nailed it that it definitely is the cabinet. Yeah, <laughs> if yeah, it's yeah, a fence, yeah. Yeah. it's like yeah, both fucking sides, man. <laughs> All right, sorry guys. Oh, uh, uh, what are we, we doing? Pound. Okay. Yeah, we're. I was just. I was actually gonna. Trung did a perfect job of, of uh, like summarizing from the, the technical perspective. I was the CFA just, tech. Exactly. I was going to share that. Um, I was going to bring in the Web3 and crypto as always, just shoehorn it in there. Here we go. Yeah, yeah that's what we do. Uh, SBF tweeted yesterday. I'm just going to read it out instead of flicking the screen share on. He tweeted, would the world be thinking differently about crypto? So, sorry, boy, would the world... Would the world thinking differently about crypto price moves if they measured it versus well, this is like not even written properly, but he's basically saying the world would think differently about the price of crypto if it measured it in baskets of currency versus just USD. And like, I think what this, uh, what's happening right now with the pound is a good example of that, right? It's like the, like a, a currency is like a weird proxy for the strength of an economy. And I don't know enough about the nuances of the UK economy to understand the position it'll be in in 10, 20 years. But obviously, the, if you just look at it as a, the fundamentals, like a, a Buffett-like investment decision, what they announced on Friday would lead to a much longer runway to pay back the debt they're creating. They're going to, you know, it's very hard to create a surplus from the position they're in. So why would you invest money in a company in that way. So I think you could just use that as like a really simple. Well, I think actually then, when you're telling the SPF thing, the thing that came to my mind, he's like, well, listen, everybody's getting clapped versus the US dollar, right? It's like, of course, Bitcoin and Ethereum look like shit. But so uh, what, what's the, I mean, you guys mentioned it, is it you, the pound down 25% this year? It's yeah, unthinkable. So somewhere close to that. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, versus wait, the dollar. Have, you, have, the have you guys heard of this, uh, the dollar milkshake theory. Have you, I feel like is Trump it similar might... to, the, to the Big Mac theory, where if you go around the world, everything no, you, no, no, you no, can no. judge currencies by oh, how no, much no, the Big Mac like is. That's the parity thing. No, this is someone sent this to me who listens to the pod, a friend of mine, um, and it basically is a theory about the U.S. dollar and what's happening right now. So it, it, I'll just read out this quick passage. It says the dollar milkshake theory is the idea that the U.S. dollar is weakening, but at the same time, all other fiat currencies are weakening more. And because the dollar is the bedrock of the global economy, meaning USD is used to buy anything worldwide, it will kill all other currencies before it's it, before it's 
before itself implodes. It's like a milkshake when you mix all the other currencies together. The dollar is the only oh, thing left standing. Oh, it's like the standing. banana. It's like the banana. It, yeah. When you put a banana in a smoothie. <laughs> no, have we you got guys, you. We got yo, you. Have okay. you seen these banana memes? Yo, I got. I, um, <laughs> let me just tell one quickly. You guys know the uh, the the Tom Hanks. I'm the captain now. A meme like the 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 Somali yeah, pirates going to yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic. Some dude did that where Tom Hanks is the and it, Tom Hanks is labeled as the milkshake and the Somali pirate is banana. It's like I'm the flavor now. <laughs> Look at me. I'm the flavor now. What Trung does in his spare time over here. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the reason I brought that because I guess like the wider theme of what we've talked about many, many times in the past here is the devaluation of fiat currencies, the USD losing uh, you know, value over time, especially last year when we were printing crazy money. Um, and and this kind of theory is trying to predict what's happening right now and trying to put a name on it at least. And uh, someone like him would say, well, this is the first stage of the capitulation of other fiat currencies before it really just implodes. And then we move to like hard assets, whether what's that is- behind, What's after the dollar? What could possibly I, be I after the dollar? I wonder what it could be, exactly. Let's yeah. ask Michael Saylor, what's after <laughs> the dollar? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is where we need our uh, stream deck set up. We need with buttons, man. We need, we need buttons. buttons. For li- we need to do live streaming and only oh use God, that one. Unreal. Anyway, the dollar Can you live is gonna streaming? lose 99.9% of its value over the next hundred years. I mean, yeah, but yeah. So anyway, all jokes aside, though, is there anything else on that? I mean, we're not macroeconomists or no. FX. Well, I think we did a good job, here. boys. Let's move on. Yeah, let's yeah, move right. on. Let's talk about Hello Kitty right down Jack Butcher's wheelhouse. All right, Key him up. Trung, you wrote about this recently, so I don't know too much about Hello Kitty or the others, but you essentially were talking about lifetime franchise revenue. Okay. Uh, of all these different franchises, you've got like ten of them in here: Pokemon, Hello Kitty, Mickey Mouse, Winnie the Pooh, Star Wars, Super Mario, Disney, uh, princesses, like a Don't bunch bury of these. The lead. What's amazing about Hello Kitty? Well, I was gonna say the number two of all those amazing franchises is Hello Kitty, eighty-nine billion dollar franchise, and we all know Jack loves a franchise from Costco to Domino's or whatever. So we're gonna have a little discussion about this. But Trung, why don't you break down? A little bit more before, about before you yeah, go, go Trang. What's number one below? Pokemon. Mm. All right. Continue. Both, yeah, both Japanese. Do the Japanese know how to operate IP? Mario Brothers, Pokemon, Hello Kitty. Seriously, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on. Let's go through that list again. Let, let me give you guys Incredible, a little yeah. like light bulb moment. Every other thing that we talked about on that list, they have television, books. Uh, film, comic books connected to them, merch and parks. You know, as well. what I mean is like the IP is built from this like huge story universe that's been built. Hello Kitty is literally famous for being Hello Kitty, and it's like it's been called the Japanese version of Disney. Uh, but there's no story. There's just no story it's underneath it. One little character, isn't it? It's one little character. I mean, they built a backstory, but it's irrelevant. It's not like it's not like these Mickey Mouse had like ten movies done about him and Fantasia and Walt Disney made this spun up this whole universe. That's the that's the incredible thing about Hello Kitty. That's what blew me away about this chart. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I looked at everything else here. Harry Potter as a whole. Uh, is there like a, is there like a breakdown within the franchise of that? Revenue. Yeah, it, it, there nice. is. So the, the other thing about Hello Kitty is interesting is 
if you look at all the other ones, uh, Bilal brought it up, the theme park, uh, television, movies, these things all have different revenue streams. Hello Kitty is 100% licensing. It's just, it's insane. Gangster, man. It that's is, crazy. But this is that's so true. When I tweeted this out, you you know who you laughed. You got you guys know who commented a lot. A lot of the uh, NFT crowds like, oh guys, look, you can spin up a hundred billion dollar franchise from scratch with no story. <laughs> yeah, right, I mean, well, hey, okay, so as they call it. Look, before I talk about the the story behind Hello Kitty and the strategy that is deployed since 1974, uh, Sanrio is the name of the merchandising IP uh, com uh, company that uh, built Hello Kitty. But um, let me ask you guys, what do you know about Hello Kitty? Is it just a pure facial recognition thing? Like you just see pictures of it? Yeah, honestly, I don't know almost anything except for like what it kind of looks like. And yeah. if I saw it, I would say, oh, that looks like Hello Kitty. But if you put like five of them in a row with different prints or whatever, I would not know what's what. Jack, and how about you? Like, my only addition to what Bilal knows is like, and I'm sure Bilal knows this as well, he just didn't say it, is like, it's very massive appreciation for it in Asia. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Bilal like, was uh, dancing around the topic. I would guess 90% <laughs> of it is, is, is yeah. uh, happening there. Well, yeah. Uh your assumptions are correct. Uh, it's at, but over the past decade, it's it's at well, up to 2010. You're right. Over the past decade, the North American Europe has actually become bigger markets, and we'll talk about how, which is insane wow, to think about. Cool. That yeah. is wild. Yeah. So, a little bit of background on Hello Kitty. First of all, it's not even a cat. That's how insane is that? It's not a cat. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I found that out. That blew my mind. That blew my soul. Is it like when you found out Santa Claus didn't exist? Yeah. Like, oh, I was like, damn, this isn't a cat. So here it is for Dude, the- According uh, to who? The Sanrio. It's not a cat. Oh, wow. So uh, a couple of things. For people that don't know Hello Kitty, uh, first of all, very, very low likelihood. But uh, it's like, it looks like a cat. There's whiskers. Uh, there's no mouth. It's um, exactly like an NFT collection. Yeah, it looks exactly right like NF exactly right. So the face is interesting. The face uh, uh, was designed to be very unintimidating. So like the first Mickey Mouse face was actually very intimidating, and uh, Walt Disney had to redo it. But if you look here, the eyes are far apart. There's no mouth, so no teeth or fangs to scare you, and uh, it, it's almost expressionless, which makes it the perfect canvas for you to express yourself on it like that's kind of the thought right i think that's what i think jack would appreciate well jack what do you think about that the design it's just so simple right you oh, it's can epically it. simple yeah, yeah yeah um and like you say you can customize a load of it but it's got like uh like the silhouette even without any of the features has like an iconic yes quality to it too same way like mickey mouse ears you don't even need to see the features of the face to understand that's Mickey Mouse. And like, I'm trying to think of anything that's gotten close to that. Maybe the Pikachu is a good example of like yep. another, like, but it's not even that simple, simple right? Thing. This is literally just a what circle. What do you think of like Jordan, the Jordan logo? Yep. That yeah. Count? Yeah. Well, that's I don't know if that there. counts as just like a brand logo versus a, another silhouette. But anyway, let me, let me start walking through the, the story behind Hello Kitty and uh, I'll just do pit stops for you guys to comment. Cause I think you'll appreciate it. So the company is named Sanrio. Uh, Sanrio, the word San means rivers in Japanese. Oh, no, sorry. San means three. River means, uh, Rio means river in Spanish. Is it Spanish? Anyways, the idea was that the, the this company was going to combine the three rivers, the three great rivers of the world and uh, make it a very global brand. So 
the way it started and Jack Butcher will appreciate this. The company started just like as a, like a, like a seaside gift shop. Like you're just selling trinkets. Right. And then the founder, his name is Shintaro Suji. One day he was trying to sell sandals at the beach. It wasn't selling very well. So he literally just put like, like a, a flower on the sandal, like drew a flower or like put some flour on the sandal and just sold like hotcakes. And then his realization is like, Oh, like people just want a little bit of branding, like something to attach themselves to. Right. And the flower from there, his company, the entire purpose of his company was to spin off random characters, ideas, and images and to see which one hit. So this is very interesting in, in North American society in, in Western corporate society, it's very usual for people to have like, uh, I mean, Bilal, you've actually probably done this. Have you done a market research where you brought in people to, uh, like a focus group? Yeah. Have you done that? Yeah, kind of. I was actually in a focus group once and I've, I've not really done it actually myself as a, I might have been there while someone else is doing it, but like listening in. How were you and the focus group? So what is it like to just add, they're like, here are some things we're looking at I, and then you rate it. I literally did it as a student. It okay. was like a little side hustle. So I would- Because uh, <laughs> you get paid to do it, right? You get paid to do it. You get paid quite a lot of money. It was like a few hundred pounds for like an hour or something. So about $100 now. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I've they were just- a, I did a few campaign did, focus groups yeah. as well. Okay, so like, can you guys tell, tell us Jack, so what, is, what is the approach when you're doing a focus group? Well, one thing I would caveat before this is like, I never really bought into the outcome of the focus group because nobody's yeah. spending any money. They're just sitting there pontificating bullshit okay, most point. of the time. And like, depends on who's around you as to what you're comfortable saying and all that kind of stuff. Revealed preferences. But yeah, yeah, exactly. The idea is you would show somebody a line or play them an ad or show them a website or just get them to use something and then individually interview them they score stuff on like these qualitative measures and if you're doing like ux focus groups and stuff like that you can actually get feedback where you think say like perform this action on this application and if they do it in this amount of time you get real data but some of the like campaign stuff is kind of like politics is another good example yeah. of where they use it right there was a really good uh like dramatization of the brexit stuff um what was that guy's name the political strategist that wrote the ad for or wrote the line for brexit and they go through all of the like focus group stuff there um yeah there's some also some good sitcom focus groups you guys ever watch the thick of it there, there's some good oh uh, yeah stuff sounds in there. very british um, oh yeah it's classic it's good yeah it's but a quality show jack just to add to the ux one i did one where yeah you would do like ux they'll say like go chip through this checkout or whatever it this was in person and they would be tracking your eyes too uh, to like sign off on that so they could see where you're looking on the screen and then um yeah so that and then there are some sometimes it's qualitative and quantitative like they'll make you do like a survey with quantitative stuff but most of the time it's qualitative it's like they're asking you broad questions to get a sense of you know some like how you think about an idea or reaction to a campaign or whatever yeah, I, I don't know what you're what you're gonna say next, Strong, but like I wonder some of these things feel like they just tapped into something, like they just designed something that like people innately love and appreciate and it just takes it's like an okay, amazing dude, meme, basically. I'm so happy you said that because it's exactly part of Suji, the founder of Sanrio's entire approach so the reason why i brought all that up is everything you guys described about these folks groups very top down right it's like hey we're corporation x we're gonna spend 100 million dollars to produce this product and we don't actually know if it's gonna work so we'll put it in focus groups he goes out the japanese approach 
is spray and pray. They just launch products, it. right? It's exactly like you said, Jack. It's uh, we actually talked about this. Um, I can't remember where it was. We were talking about you put a lot of ideas out. Oh, we were talking about the Minions uh, film and how it went viral. We were like, oh, you're just kind of putting out all these different memes he's showing hits. But like Suji with Sanrio was doing this from a product perspective. He was like putting out all these really affordable trinkets and just seeing which one hit in the market. And apparently it's a very Japanese approach where instead of doing market research, they're just like, let's just throw it out there. And whatever hits, we're going to ride it so hard. And that, I mean, that's Hello Kitty is a perfect example it they it would so they have twenty thousand products sanrio today like separate from hello kitty just like trinkets of like oh, every damn. single yeah sorry what the equivalent of one hello kitty like franchise yeah, they have all mean? these brands and like things or small oh, wow. things that it, not all of them have like a character connected to them but they have that's how many products they have every year oh, sanrio no. even now churns through 600 products like or, or a thousand like they'll launch a thousand products into the market and like They'll just turn right through them and be like, oh, none of those hit. And just on to the next thing. Yeah, I'm but looking the, at the characters now. There's not another single one on here I've heard. On I'm the not same level, on the market, right? but yeah. like, I have no idea of any of these. Well, others. actually, can you know, you know what you sorry, might know? Oh, sorry, Trump, guys. Can I, just yeah, so go I was going to ask ahead. one thing real quick. Just to reiterate, though, like we said the numbers early on. This is like more than twice the size of the Harry Potter franchise, in right? Revenue, like, in revenue. In revenue. In revenue. In revenue. Okay, okay. So th that includes Harry Potter's like films and everything. Yeah. Theme park. That's so now, wild. Yeah, they sell multi-billion. They sell two, three, four, five. I can't remember what the number was. That's why uh, I looked at different sources for different years. But I've heard anywhere between one to five billion a year still in Hello Kitty sales. Just Hello Kitty. And uh, well, I mean, that's, that's most of the companies. Sanrio is a public of, company. It's kind of got a... Uh ageless quality to it as well dude i mean this is why i wanted to bring because i knew jack would hit this so when he designed this okay so let me go back to suji i'm getting so excited talking about this guy so he starts launching products like crazy right and then one day he's like oh he looked at his entire catalog in the early 70s he's like oh i don't have an animal can somebody make me an animal even though it didn't end up being a cat i don't know what it is it's an animal type creature they had a designer a designer it's a female designer uh, her name was uh yuko shimizu one day just drew hello kitty just drew this hello kitty character and you guys will laugh hello kitty's uh uh backstory that they kind of just appended to it is from uh, hello kitty's from england and uh, oh, yeah. it's because in the 70s you British culture was huge in that Japan. Paddington Bear life. Yeah, yeah, the Paddington yeah. Bear life. Uh, exactly, it was it was the Paddington Bear influence. What, so do, all jokes aside, why why is that? Do you reckon? It's just I know things become popular for different reasons, but do you have any idea? Japan, like historically, I feel like the Beatles might be involved. Uh, oh, got it. Yeah, Beatles were huge, uh, and then it, it, they got attracted to that culture because of it. Uh, but mm, yeah, it okay. was uh, the, the the character's name is Kitty White. That's why it's Hello Kitty, but it's not actually a cat. So Kitty White from England, they drew this character. The first product they sold was a coin purse. And uh, a couple of things that, uh, well, I want to directly address what Jack said, which makes it so genius. It has this kind of ageless, timeless feature to it, right? And that was exactly the strategy when they developed the character. Because they wanted to be able to capture people as they went through their entire lives. So when you're a kid, it's like, a, it's, it's, it's known of, a, it's in a genre called kawaii, which means cute. It's like a cute product, but like it's cute when you're young, but then they sell a bunch of products when for 20, 30, 40 year olds, like they, they, for example, have collaborations today with LVMH and Sephora. So now it's cool. So it's gone from cute to cool. And then 
when you're in your 40s, 50s, they play purely in the nostalgia, the playbook. And it's to Jack's exact point. It's a timeless, ageless kind of uh, a look. And they can sell to people throughout their entire lives. Like this was, they thought about this, which to me just blows my mind. Incredible. And I and, bet you there's a similar story there with the, uh, you know, the Nike swoosh to the, the lore of that. Like someone got paid 50 bucks to draw the Nike swoosh and it yeah. made Nike what it, I, I wouldn't say it's made it what it is, but it's definitely probably top five most recognizable symbols in the world. And the person that drew it did not get the recognition for drawing that thing that, you know, consummate with the economic value that has been yeah, created not even it. close right was that like a freelance i remember reading it in shoe dog but i forgot yeah, a, a student in oregon <laughs> i think yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy mental incredible yeah incredible. it's unreal so the artist here uh, uh, yeah to jack's point uh, 90 billion dollars in lifetime revenues are just, just how they thought about this again but jack you mentioned it it's not like they thought about the full 360 they're like okay we think these might work but it hit and this this meme virality just completely took off on it. But this is the genius though of Shintaro Suji. He goes, once you have success, all I care about is managing the brand. And he's like, if you blow it up too fast, it's like a balloon. You put in too much air, it's gonna explode. So like they managed it just so well, right? He's like, we're gonna start licensing it here. We have, and their rules for licensing, very cool. they're very smart. It's like, uh, you mentioned earlier, I think it's, you said, oh, I think it's very popular in Asia. You're right. But in the past decade, um, they've really gone global. And their big move globally is they, they allow the local licensees, they have very loose licensee requirements. They're just like, keep the face this way, but do whatever you want with it otherwise, because they want the localization effect. A CCO, and, uh, that yeah, original yeah, yeah, CCO. Yeah, yeah. Close, close so, so Jack, you're hearing all this. How do, how much does this sound like, uh, you're like, oh, you know, this playbook, obviously maybe not necessarily replicable, but people clearly can learn from it. Yeah. I think the, I think the idealist take on it is with the ability to produce a symbol that does go on to have that much virality and like, um, global exposure. If you're able to have a digital signature accompany that from this point forward, then maybe you capture a massive amount more value. Another like example of this is uh, Pepe the frog, mm, you yeah. know, Pepe the Frog. Everyone should watch, um, I think it's called Feels Good Man. It's an HBO documentary about how that symbol got like hijacked by 4chan and like used in all like a lot of horrendous context. But someone wrote the other day that uh, Pepe the Frog is a Mickey Mouse of the internet. So what you're seeing in like NFT culture is people using that symbol to create new artwork and the like original pieces that were created by Matt Fury, the guy that drew him originally, will continue to appreciate in value as a function of people spreading the meme. And the one thing that's different in NFTs versus like a Hello Kitty thing is they're digitally native from day one. I think Hello Kitty could probably have success if they did some digital stuff, but it's not like the DNA of the thing, not where the brand started out. Uh, so that's one thing I think it would, would change. And then I don't know the, the, uh, 
the physical expression that's like baked into Hello Kitty feels like a very powerful um, component of all of this too. And I actually have a, uh, I worked at a company in New York that was like big licensing. Um, there were, a, what would you call it? It's like an apparel company and they had like deals with Reebok. It, they worked in, with Walmart to do like all the like, Socks and what IP did they stuff. own though? What IP did they own to license? Nothing. nothing. Oh, they, they were the, they, more the manufacturer or something. Yeah, they manufactured it and they would do like the, the, you know have a deal with Reebok to do a million pairs of socks and stuff like that. So I didn't get that close to it. But are you allowed to say the name of the company or is it? It's just <laughs> like some dude's name who lives oh, in New York. Nobody got would it. know what oh, it is. Oh wow! Yeah. It's man, just I like love those businesses, millions man. and millions <laughs> yeah. of dollars of commitments you from Walmart. Have, that's incredible. incredible it's like my friend we're going to talk about these guys in a minute but my friend from the uk went to uni with me we just thought he's a regular birmingham lad and then we go to his house and we're all just like what the hell does your family do and i find <laughs> is that he, he from made, gujarat well uh no he's actually sikh but uh okay like, he's actually wait he might be hindu punjabi which is a more of a unique uh i can't remember i think he's actually sikh sorry but uh, but anyway from punjab but they they used to manufacture all the kids' clothing for like Mark Spencer, Tesco, and Asda or something like that. They were, it was like two, two like Tesco and Asda, which are big like supermarkets in the UK, which is obviously not like high end, but just imagine a scale. And then Mark Spencer, which uh, maybe Mark Spencer wasn't the thing actually. Maybe it was more like the the cheaper brands. But man, that that sort of business, no one's ever heard of you, but you've just got absolute crazy scale. What it's amazing? Um, what's the the do you know any like details of the economics of a individual licensing deal roughly like what they have to send back or is it a per unit thing or sometimes it's i guess they all differ a lot but is there any anything written about that are you saying for hello kitty or are you talking about yeah the i'm kids asking thing? trung like trung, did, yeah, yeah. in your research did you see anything that was like i didn't get the how license they pay? i didn't get the number uh that's a great question um I mean, what, what are the what are the options though? Or probably just a royalty kickback or the one-time licensing fee, fee or combination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to ask Tron, cool similar to to that question. Like out of those top ten, you, you were saying Hello Kitty is unique for all the things you described, but also because it's all come from licensing, right? But all of the others do some form of licensing too. Oh, yeah, I'm they assuming. Do and, but, and honestly, they do a lot. Of the, and to your point, like Star Wars, take Star Wars half of its money's from toys right that, that's what i was going to ask like the proportion of this is this like hello kitty is like 98 percent uh like licensing and the others are like 50 20 do, do you have any idea on the breakdown I, I, I think on your point i think the licensing is the majority for the other ones also which makes sense right because licensing is you're letting it out in the wild and then yeah. you're just getting paid to do like uh, let's take pokemon for example it's gaming revenue is a fraction of of the the full package right uh, i mean here i'll pull it up right now lifetime franchise wiki uh and <laughs> the things is that <laughs> yeah <laughs> i love the things you find bro this is amazing all right so, why are you pulling it up gone while he's put while he's pulling it up i'm just gonna do a little plug for the uh the nouns yeah. so this is like the same theory i think as mickey mouse ears Hello Kitty silhouette, Pikachu, like these, these, uh, now the glasses goggles yeah. are glasses, sorry, uh, reproducible at scale, recognizable, you know, you can use them in a lot of different contexts. They span ages. Like you can make kids material with them. You can do it. So, uh, that theory again, doesn't have 
the economic structure of a company that franchises that stuff out. But in an internet native way, the idea of having tokens that represent the like genesis of it is, I think, um, you know, your ability to participate in the governance of growing the brand is really valuable and interesting. And there's a Nouns Dow Japan that spun up a couple oh. months ago. They're starting to, you know, experiment and do things in, um, in reverse, Asia. Reverse Hello Kitty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we'll see. We'll see. But that's, uh, we'll keep. Uh, well, we'll actually, keep let me, let me answer. So I'll hold it up story. here. Let me answer. Yeah, we should update this story because it, it, uh, this honestly deserves its own episode. But let's, uh, to answer Bilal's question. So Bilal, now that I've looked into numbers, very interesting. So who are the other ones that we looked at, right? The first two, both Japanese brands, as we talked about, Japan knows how to steward IP. Like they, they know how to do it. So Pokemon, 75% of its 120 billion in revenue, lifetime revenue is licensing. But then if you look at the other uh, uh, names on that list, Mickey Mouse, Winnie the Pooh, it's not licensing. Is straight to retail sales because they control the experience, right? So that's the thing. It's like you're going to Disneyland and you're buying some Winnie the Pooh slippers, which which I have done in the past. I went to Disneyland as a kid. I got some Winnie you're the Pooh them slippers. You're wearing them right now. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's a really like your point, strong about like managing the brand. It's like you get to a certain scale, and then licensing doesn't necessarily hurt you. Like you yeah. have to be like epically huge and mean what you're going to mean to certain people. And then you can make $3 versions of yep. whatever it is that, you know, sandals on the beach. And then they have a $9,000 Louis Vuitton purse with a Hello Kitty pan painted on it or whatever. Well, here's something really smart that Sanrio did, which for all our marketer and founder friends, something to think about. They intentionally started at low price points, but the way they captured value was making it collectible. So here's a very salient example. So they sold like uh, magnets uh, uh, for every Japanese prefecture. Uh, how many there ever are? I don't know, dozens or hundreds. But here's the genius move. If you get all the magnets, which only cost $3 each, you want the entire collection, right? To build that. So instead of selling one thing for a hundred bucks, they'll sell a hundred things for one bucks. And $1 and that gets you the same place, but the psychology makes it way easier for somebody to want to do that. And now you want to complete it. So like, and the, they, the network effect of that is crazy too, right? The yeah, entry point is so low. Exactly. So, and, and this is related to your point about you get to a point where you're so big, it doesn't even matter. They lose apparently a billion dollars a year by getting knocked off and they just have to accept it. It's because the character is so easy to knock off. And, but I think this dovetails with your point. It's like, once you're that size, if you're getting knocked off a billion dollars a year, that means good things are happening. So, yeah, I mean, it's also interesting to frame that as a loss, right? It's not really a loss. It's like the the $2 thing that somebody buys that's knocked off might lead them to buy $20 from Louis the real v. thing in the yeah. future. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> Or like, fly on the Hello Kitty uh, uh, jet, which they did uh, for Ava Airlines in Taiwan. It's, it's interesting. It's like a great argument. Like even if the fake version is abundant, people are still going to buy the real one. Yep. It's, and I think like that's, there's some story, I think maybe we talked about it where LVMH spends like a ungodly amount of money a year on their like anti-fraud that team and they're down chasing on, down everybody. Yeah. So maybe the economics of it in that world are like, it makes sense to, yeah, because the price point of entry is so high, like there's maybe a much bigger market on the low end. And if you let it get out of control, you lose some, I don't I know. That's, I was going to bring that up, Jack, as well, that, this like works for the mass, but when you're doing like actual luxury, 
like you like which is based on crazy you know price points and then aspirational kind of spin-offs of your core brand a lot of the time like they'll have cheaper versions that you know uh, people can afford even if you look at like we talked about it ain't Ralph though and uh, this came up recently because Kanye is now going D2C after we spoke um, but like I can't remember which way around it is but there's like the original Ralph Lauren which is kind Double of RL is a top right exactly yeah I think yeah, so yeah. yeah and then they then they had like Polo Ralph Lauren and stuff like that and then yeah so all of these brands like I'd worked with in my Google job the last one was like f like luxury fashion was basically the vertical and and like also the kind of broader vertical in fashion and like they would just be so shook to do you know stuff that everyone else is doing but it was all about you know how their brand looked like next to other content so if you think they're coming from a world of buying vogue magazine ads right and uh, print ads and then you've got a video ad going live on youtube let's say <coughs> alongside it could be all sorts of content. It's not like based on the content, it's based on the user. So if that user is interested in luxury fashion, but it happens to be watching, you know, Logan Paul's podcast, they don't really want to be associated with that. So I'm, I'm curious to think like how the luxury brands, like we've talked about LVMH um, and the caring and those bigger groups, like there's a reason why they take a different approach. Like they license like certain things, like they might license, for example, perfume and stuff like that. But a lot of the other stuff is all managed in-house and that they take meticulous care for that reason. But I think there's something a, like this, yeah, go on, go on. I was just, sorry, there's only one other example of the like most extreme is like a Ferrari. Yeah. Where they sell almost as example. much merch as they do cars. Like obviously that's, that's a wild. lot more customers buying t-shirts and those dodgy Puma trainers than uh, <laughs> like going in and buying yeah, a yeah. 400 grand car. But it's like you really have to understand like how much demand you're creating and then like tap into it without devaluing like the bigger brand. And because those products are so far apart and like the racing component is very different than the like driving a GT car component. It's a fascinating like thing to have to steward and almost you like I think there has to be some size. It's like too big to fail kind of situation where there can be like really dodgy executions of merchandise but the the idea is so strong and beloved and like viral that you know it's not going to dilute anything past a certain point as long as you keep innovating and making beautiful interesting stuff yourself um i was just looking at the paddington bear thing that was 1958 and that feels to me again i'm not i don't know not very, paying close attention to that story, but it feels like that didn't stay on that adoption curve like a Hello Kitty, you know, didn't didn't ever hit the the parabolic. There's too many uh, there's too many features in the face and the body. Too many teddy bears. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's probably not. Yeah, probably not. It wasn't unique adaptable enough. enough. Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. All right, Good trying chat, anything boys. else on that? Yeah, really interesting. I think it kind of like overlaps with a lot of the stuff we talk about with yeah. NFTs. Uh, like and kind of evolving from like what's worked for decades but like the cco example with your nouns glasses is a good one like if and also for people who are ogs of nia pod um if you remember the cryptodes was designed by is it gremlin gremlin mm -hmm, or whatever mm -hmm, same mm -hmm. artist who who and they used the the nouns glasses in a lot of those nfts so and they would be priced more on a premium side um so yeah quite that's quite an interesting example all right should we finish up with 
Gautam Adani. I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, but um, Indian dude who's now richer than Jeff Bezos. So <sighs> pretty cool. Oh, mental. Dude, I didn't know that. Uh, so, yeah. Big milestone. Well, let me, uh, let me throw this number, number two now. Yeah, Trunk. Number two, yeah. After he's got Elon. He's got quite a way to go to catch up to our boy Elon. But uh, here, check out this chart, guys. For the listeners, I'm about to pull up the chart of Gautama Danny's wealth. Woo, look at it that. Is the most, it is the mo- one of the Wee. most... Look at this. So, in, uh, it, it's shot, literally, it's literally <laughs> parabolic. For the listeners, it's literally parabolic. It's he from was 2020, wor- is that? He was worth $10 billion that in January. He's in January 2020, he was worth $10 billion. Nothing to sneeze at, obviously. But look at this. He's added $130 billion to his wealth in two years. So now you're probably wondering, how did he do it? I got you covered. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll... Um, get your notepads ready. I got your notepads ready. Did a big piece on it uh, for my newsletter, uh, but I'll just give you the high-level points. So let's just list through the top 10 richest people in the world. Elon, one, 245. Gautama Danny, 142. So he's up 65 this year. He's the only one in the top 10 that's up this year. Everybody else is down double digits. That's crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Bezos, then Arnaud, Bill Gates, Buffett, Page, Bryn, Mukesh Ambani, who's also an Indian tycoon from the state of Gujarat, and then Steve Ballmer. So a couple of things. So Steve Ballmer just still posted up. That's dude, incredible. Unreal. Hey, Ballmer. What a legend. Employee number 30 at Microsoft joins with zero equity, 10th richest person in the world. That's wild. What All a right, legend. So- so uh, we definitely got to do a Balmer appreciation episode or, or, or hate, uh, appreciation and hate. You know, we do, we do both sides of the coin here. Yeah. Um, so I knew nothing about Gautam and Danny up, up until literally a week ago. Have you guys even heard of this guy? Just in the last week. Yeah, it is the well, most last outrageous. Weeks, yeah. Like, uh, do you guys remember a couple years ago, a Brazilian guy named Batista? He kind of rocked You guys remember that guy? He was also in the, uh, uh, he was in the energy industry. Uh, which is the 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 majority of Adani's empire now. So let me just set the context. India, obviously, super fast growing uh, country, uh, uh, billion plus people. It'll have the largest population by this time next year. I think 1.4 billion, more than China. Its demographics very young, English speaking. Obviously, long history uh, was the biggest economy in the world for 1800 the last 2000 years. Uh, but it's developing at a very rapid pace. And so Gautama Dani and Mukesh Ambani, they're considered the Vanderbilt and uh, Rockefeller type for India, right? So India at this stage is at a comparable level of development uh, in terms of infrastructure as the US around the early 1900s on a per capita basis, uh, which means, of course, it's 100 years later, so they have way more like high tech stuff, right? But the uh, the fast growth of the country means you got people that can accumulate wealth at uh, extraordinary paces. But the thing about Adani, which is very important to, uh, uh, to identify, is he's quite close to Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And this is where it gets controversial. This is where the controversy arises with Adani because 80% of his wealth, which is tied up in seven publicly listed companies, so I'll just listen off quickly. I don't want to bore the people, but he has seven companies which are publicly listed. And uh, so they're all his name. Adani Enterprises, Adani Green Energy, Adani Ports, Adani Power, Adani Total Gas, Adani Transmission, 
And, like, can I hear- also just while you pull while you're talking, I'm just pulling up what it looks like because I can. He looks like he's like got a few boy. ports. Yeah, with the <laughs> yeah with he the looks, mustache. Yeah, he looks like, like a G. He looks like a. Well, here's the thing, right? So, so eighty percent of his group's revenue. It's not a ton. It's only thirty billion, but. The, the insane thing about him, all those stocks I just listed, like green energy, power transmission, they trade on price to earnings ratios. So the higher the price to earnings ratio, the more overpriced it is. In the seven, eight hundreds is like the valuations are. It's Wait, literally, seven eight hundred? You said, dude, sevens to eight hundred. So the I thought you were about to say seven to eight. I was like, damn, this dude, is really. Adani Green Energy trades at eight hundred times price to earnings. Wait, can we compare that to other companies? People know what's the, like Google. Take a, well, Microsoft at the, at, PE. We're talking 2030 as an example. And then like Tesla is quite high, right? Tesla's high. I think Tesla's 100 plus. But uh, and then you had the, the yeah, and then you had the high tech growth stocks when things were super rah rah this time last year. They're trading at PEs in nearly the 100 range. But like, but we're this talking, is six, seven times more than that. Yes. Than that. So mm. it's insane, right? And uh, uh, people are like, well, has he got what, some go- like thousand year contracts or something? Is that why? Well, it's yeah. like this is goes back to the Modi <laughs> thing. It's like essentially people are betting. Is is no? I mean, it's not even it's not even wrong, right? It's like the Narendra Modi is like, I want to have a green uh, economy, like everybody does. So Danny's like, okay, I'll spend seventy trillion dollars on green tech, uh, hydrogen, solar, wind, for over the next decade, and. Uh, and then they're like, okay, well, you also have to power the country for 1.4 billion people. Who are you going to go to? You need somebody that has a track record of building infrastructure, which uh, Adani does. And that's close to the government, which Adani is. Monopoly. Yeah, it's exactly mm. right. So yeah. he has a, a monopoly on power, uh, literally energy and on power. And uh, I'll just quickly talk about his background. It's not, well, we don't have to go too deep into it, but he was born in Gujarat. So I'll, I'll show this photo. So, uh, so we can get into actually Gujarati's uh, to finish off this chat. But uh, so let me let me tell you guys why Gujarat is uh, the state that's most known for creating entrepreneurs in India. I think you'll appreciate this. This is fun fact, fan time. Here so, we go. Gujarat is the westernmost state in India. So you guys see it here for the listeners. I have the map pulled out. And Funnily enough, it's on a corner. Sorry, I can say this because yeah. a lot of them uh, in the UK anyway, there's a, a lot of Gujaratis own like corner shops and little supermarkets and stuff. Well, you're allowed to say they own, how about this stat? They own a third of all motels in the United States. That's wild. That's mental. That, how wild is that? So the state from of Gujarat, state. The, in the United States, wow. all from that state. So... I'm just going to list off some crazy things about Gujarat. I think Gujarat's more interesting probably to our listeners than, uh, uh, than the, the, the Adani story. Um, so Gujarat, why is it such a hotbed for entrepreneurship? Uh, it has the longest coastline of any state in India, 1,600 kilometers. So it's just been a place of trade for hundreds of years. Uh, this is a very interesting fact. The, when Persians invaded uh, uh, India... They took over the area in Gujarat. A lot of Indians converted to uh, to Islam, and Hindus, which primarily in India, were not allowed to cross the sea at that time. There's a restriction mm. on crossing the sea, but as they converted to Islam and became Muslims, they were allowed to trade. Oh damn! So, yeah. So historically, we're talking geographically. It makes sense, and then. The religious influence and then over the last four or five hundred years Gujarat has just become a place where entrepreneurship has taken over here he, this is this is particularly insane they went to africa a lot of gujaratis 
at one point in uh, Uganda, they were only 800,000, oh no, 100,000 of a population of 8 million. So less than like a 0.01% of the population, they were accounted for a quarter of their GDP, just their businesses. So That's like, insane. Yeah, so. Like 300. Yeah, it's like, three, it's like 300. It's like 300 uh, for, for commerce. But uh, before we talk about Andani a little bit more, let me, let me toss it to you guys. Tell me about the Gujarat reputation in the UK for commerce. Balao. Yeah, I don't know if Jack wants to get cancelled, but yeah. Um, no, no, as I was saying before, I think, yeah, I, I, like a lot of my closest friends growing up, like this guy Hitesh who's listening to this, I think his dad was a tailor. My other friend Jay Patel, his dad owned the cost cutters and like opened a few of them. And like basically every Gujarati person I know at school, like most of them had some sort of business. Like it wouldn't always be like, you know, crushing it, but like whether it's like a, a corner store or whatever. And uh, I think a lot of it is just like, cultural as well like passed down gener generation from generation like literally i think his surname was taylor uh, his taylor so I'm, i could be getting this wrong but i'm pretty sure his dad was taylor and i remember him i think he told me uh like that's literally just we've come from a line of tailors or something like that um and uh, yeah so there's and then patel i forgot what patel actually means but I, I don't, again half of this i don't know if it was just jokes people would be saying but um there was also a meaning around patel which meant something to do with business owner as well um so yeah they're also and again i'll say this but in our brown community of people where we have all these very specific stereotypes um that we would make jokes that they were like cheaper than us. And actually my, my uh, it's like Gujaratis and Sheikhs, I think is the other one. And my grandma uh, from her side is one of those. So we would get it as well. Um, so yeah, again, I don't know if that's like nice to say, but that was kind of one of the things we kind of grew up calling each other. Like you'd call someone a Guji if they were like being cheap with you, which is again, don't cancel me for that. That's just something people used to say. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I think uh, the thing you hit on, which I love that you brought up, was the passing down of the business, right? That's why the moteliers in America are a third Gujarati. It just literally was passed down. So in the 50s, Gujarats arrived to America as immigrants, and there aren't a lot of business opportunities, obviously. But the motel business did two things for them. The Patel family is actually, a Patel family is actually known as the moteliers in North America. So what does a motel do for you? It gives you a business and it also gives you places to live, right? So it was like two yeah, birds with one stone. Smart. So like that's how they got involved and that's how it was passed down to the kids because the kids would be the ones cleaning the bedrooms, like cleaning the towels. Like that's how uh, this the business of motelling uh, became such a big thing for Gujarats in America. And, and, and this one, let me throw this one. I think mm. this one will sound familiar. You mentioned corner stores. How about pharmacies? Because half the pharmacies mm, yeah. in America are owned by Gujaratis. Wow! So is that the same in the Respect. UK? Do you do you do you have that that memory? I mean, the guy I was just telling you about, Hitesh, he's a pharmacist. So <laughs> <laughs> literally, so, um, right, so no, I, I do remember. Yeah, a, a lot of. I mean, I think it's interesting because it was the immigrant generation, like our parents. You know, that came a lot of them came with nothing, so they just find the jobs they can, they start businesses, and then the next generation obviously gets more educated and then ends up doing. They become doctors, they become you know like some sort of sciencey thing. Um, yeah, so 
I, I'm, I'll be curious to understand like how that if there's been a lot of drop off in like just going into like professional careers well, like versus third gen, that's a great that's a great question but I mean I sent it to you yesterday there's obviously are still so many successful Gujaratis uh, so to, again to the top 10 richest people in the world and Banny and Danny are both from Gujarat and then I sent this to Bilal yesterday I, I would love to you guys chat about but the the gas station brothers the Issa brothers they're one of the richest people they own Asda right yeah. So what is like that? Is that just a chain? Asda is like, Asda is like the, uh, it's like Tesco's or any supermarket, but it's like, was always about the cheapest product. It's actually pretty good. I mean, it, their positioning was like, we're going to get it to you for cheaper than Tesco or Sainsbury's. And then I'm pretty sure Walmart come and, and bought like a massive chunk of it. So there's a, uh, Asda Walmart in Swindon, mate. Oh, <laughs> as the Walmart, as the Walmart, yeah. it's like Super a Okay, Super so the Insta brothers sound like they deserve a thread from Trunk Fan. Um, let me wrap up You're here. Muted, Bilal. Oh, I was oh, gonna yeah. say, I'm pretty sure there's a BBC documentary on them. I okay, might have even find seen it. it a long time ago. I could be wrong, but they have a really fascinating story. Like, really, I'm really cool. I'm gonna check that out. Let yeah. me uh, let me wrap up with Danny then. Uh, not to. I know this isn't tech or crypto. It might be boring people, but it just it's just a Only energy, the only, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you want to rewind to the Sailor episode, understand why that's an important topic yeah. for you to be knowledgeable exactly, on. Exactly, right? So, well, that's the thing. That's why the wealth exploded this year. They have all these energy assets and coal. coal. He's the coal king. 62% of the revenue comes from coal. He imports the coal. Uh, he uh, distributes, creates energy and distributes energy to your home. So like, vertically integrated energy and energy empire but the last thing i'll say about him is like yes i mentioned the government connection so modi was the chief minister the equivalent of head of government of the state of gujarat between 2001 2014. that's his exact same time that danny started coming up so these guys came up together mm, and boys what, yeah. yeah so what's interesting about them is but modi got elected in large part in 2014 because of something called the gujarat model he basically, the state was the fastest growing state of, during this period of hyper-globalization. He's like, what I did in Gujarat, I can do for India. So that was his pitch, right? And so what did he do in Gujarat? Well, he brought in a ton of foreign investment, built a ton of infrastructure, and built this export industry. So Adani owns the largest port in India, and he's huge uh, part of the export game. And they so I read this book called Billionaire Raj by James Crabtree. I'd highly recommend it if you want to know about this, uh, how the, these billionaires have come up in the last couple of decades. But he calls a relationship very symbiotic. And uh, some people think it's way more than symbiotic. I think Putin said that about yeah. a few people too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't take it that far because Adani has built like real infrastructure for the country. And yeah, the guy yeah, I'm is messing a, around. The guy's a complete sap. Like he's an animal. You could tell from the mustache, man. I could tell as soon as I saw the picture, this guy has got money. Well, listen to this. Uh, like Two last fun facts about him. Uh, in 1995, he's abducted. So he was born in 62. At the age of 33, he's abducted because he's started getting successful in the export business. Uh, they paid 1.5 million ransom to, uh, to free him. And in 2008, you guys remember this, the uh, Mumbai terrorist attacks, he was trapped in one of the hotels and survived. And Damn, wow. made it out. So this guy, he's done. Teflon I mean, he's seen, Don. Yeah, Teflon Don. And the last thing I'll say about him to give him the bona fides, the bona fides is uh, the difference between him and Mukesh Ambani is Ambani, number nine richest in the world, worth $85 billion, inherited his uh, conglomerate from his father. He's done a great job with it, but inherited from his father. 
Whereas Gautam Adani built his business from scratch. God and he's mode, still, baby. God mode and Adani still lives in uh, in, <laughs> in Gujarat. Mode, I said, not God, God mode. did. Hard mode. Yeah, God he did. He did a hard mode, right? So uh, yeah. he still lives in uh, Gujarat. So he gets uh, from the community. He gets extra points for still living in Gujarat. Whereas Ambani lives in that billion dollar tower in uh, Mumbai. You know, Antilia. Mm. So Damn. Um, living a good life. Yeah, that's a so wild. That's a wild that's come a up story, to think, like um, what, developing world come ups like in recent times because like you said this is equivalent of someone doing this in like the 1900s or 1800s it's whatever it happened. They call him Modi's Financial Times calls him Modi's Rockefeller. But mm. with like you said the modern stuff available, so you're now doing the clean tech, you're doing the telecoms, you're exactly. doing the internet enabled stuff, and there's all the growth. You know the you you can do things that aren't just old school steel magnate vibes so well, they and do what's interesting fine. about India is like think about this right there's so much money swatching around the world if you want to invest in India you're literally just looking at it you're like uh, who am I going to give my money to like who can navigate this difficult government bureaucratic apparatus and yeah I mean yeah it is a monopoly and it, it, the there are levels of tightness of government and, uh, and, and commerce, right? Bilal brought it up. Well, to talk about it, on one end is Russia, where they just loot the state and provide no value. On the other end is the East Asia model, like Samsung. The Samsung family is a quarter of South Korea's GDP. Granted, they've done a lot of shenanigans. For example, the head of Samsung went to jail for four years because of corruption with the head of government. Like, But then you, the way I'd balance it out is this. I wrote about it and then I had to delete it because it sounded like I was condoning corruption. But I lived in Vietnam in 2008, which is a similar level of development as India. And basically when you're looking at countries at these levels, you're like, there's so little state capacity. There's so little infrastructure that somebody's ultimately going to have to do it. And unfortunately, there's going to have to be some ripping off. Uh, it's just going to happen, right? It's human nature. And there, there's, a, there's a string of thought in development economics that if there's zero corruption it's actually a bad thing because if there's zero corruption that means there's no, there's no development mm. does that make sense is yeah it, like the reality no one wants yeah. it well in but in reality it, it has to happen because when you're not, growing exactly that and again this is not condoning corruption don't cancel me. i'm just saying yeah, of course it's like <laughs> listen <cancel> i'm just saying it's like man, hold on pure math let me throw it to because blouse address that I'm going to rope you into a butcher. If there's zero craft or graft or corruption, you make me it just, say it. Yeah. It just, it's like, it just sounds like the country's not making any money. This is development economics. People don't cancel me. It's boring. It's, no one's trying to put money. There's no FDI yeah, or whatever. There's nothing just to like, steal. We're going somewhere else where we can make it. And just to show that, cause I realized after I said some stuff that someone who doesn't have a sense of humor would be annoyed. What I said about Gujarat, I'm going to call out my own, people too if i type in mr 10 percent pakistan <laughs> okay. I'm not um, laughing. you know i don't get political but this is uh the is it maybe was he the prime minister the president i can't keep up with pakistani politics but mr uh, asif zadari was uh, known as mr 10 percent in pakistan what because happened? if you needed to build a road and you know if it, they, you know if you're building a road or you're doing some sort of you know government related project they put out a tender and all these people will pitch for it like you know Listen, Sometimes I'm, you need to make we're that just realists. Guys, it's just yeah, like, it happens. And last thing I'll say, in developing economies, when guys like Mr. 10% come around, money actually serves in some ways. It's a greasing mechanism, right? Things don't get done. You can move things on. Not condoning any of it. But the last thing I'll say is this. When Trump fan was living in Vietnam, 
He was pulled over by police officers on a number of occasions. Are you talking about, about yourself in the third person? About myself. <laughs> you, you know what the police officers do? This is very well known. If you're an expat in Vietnam, you didn't want to get run through the... Down. Yeah. They go, they ask for coffee money. They literally ask for coffee money. Hey, I haven't had coffee today is what they tell you. And you're like, oh. How many cups? Had coffee? Yeah. How many yeah, cups do you yeah, want? Here you go. <laughs> so you, you literally... When I was pulled over on my scooter, I'm like, I don't want to deal with this right now. Like, let's just play the game. Well, how many, how much coffee do you want? Okay. So I'm just saying, I'm not condoning it, but I get it. I'm An just extra, a extra, here. extra large latte. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All the, the ice and the milk, the special milk. Um, all right. That was a great rundown, man. Thanks for sharing that trunk. Um, yeah, I appreciate yeah. Great yeah, episode. Great. I think I we can say so myself. wrap it there. Anything else before we close out? I got to get back to digging holes, lads. All right, mate. Oh, and uh, yeah, this time next week, uh, your boy uh, Trung will be in Asia. So hopefully we can squeeze out a nice little Asia episode. Yeah, we episode. might have to do a midnight episode for Trung. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Um, if not, me and Jack will be either way. So yeah, we will see you guys next week. Let us know what you think of this. Um, feel free to write a comment on YouTube. We respond to all of those. We read all of those. And obviously in Telegram too, if you're there, join us there. Uh, we appreciate all your support and we will see you next week. Peace. Peace.